Well, then I'll speak up. Can you hear me now? God is good. I love that new song, Freedom. Wow. I love freedom, too. Freedom is awesome. And I love what God's doing. Now, before we get started here, because I don't want to forget, I want to pray for Robert, for um, Benjamin's grandfather, who had a heart attack this morning, correct, at 4 a.m. Father, I pray for Robert right now. I release warring angels to surround him, to defeat any strategies of the enemy, to break down any strongholds that would be up for him not to see what you want in his life. Father, I don't know if he knows you. I don't know his situation. But God, I know you love him regardless. I pray that through this process, you turn what Satan intends for evil into good and help him to see your loving arms, Father. I pray for his salvation if he doesn't know you. And I pray for a deepening of his relationship with you, if he does. Father, we thank you and we praise you. And God, I pray for this morning. What you've laid on my heart, God, I know is for us here right now. I pray for ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that in each chair here this morning, You rest your Holy Spirit, whom you promise to reveal your truth and glorify your Son's name. I pray for that because this is so important. As you laid it on my heart last night and then heavily this morning, God, we just stand with open palms. To receive. Not to receive for want, to receive to just covet, but to receive for you to empower. Fill my mouth with your words, Father. I give you my mouth. I relinquish control of my mouth and give it to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We've talked about this sort of thing a few times. I find it interesting that God brings it up again, and he brings it up again, and he brings it up again, and he brings it up again, and again, and again. And I recognize it's, it's because of how important it is for not just a few of us, Not just a third of us, not just half of us, not just three quarters of us, but all of us. There are people this morning that may get it for the first time. So often we kind of sit and think, 
you know, what does God have for my life? What is, what is he, what is he going to do? Is he going to give me blank, 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 blank? Or is he going to use me in blank, 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 blank? And in reality, what we're trying to figure out is his will. And he's made clear to us his will will not be seen in the blank, 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 blank. Right? In the sequence of what he does. It will be seen at each step. Whereas we want the third, the fourth, the fifth step. But he's saying, I need you to trust me in the first step. And then trust me in the next step. Because I'm not going to show you the next one until you do the first. And then I'll show you the next one after that, once you've done that. What we're going to talk about today is this idea of recognizing your calling. Recognizing what God wants for your life. What he is leading you in. What he's wanting you to do. At this time in history... There is nothing more important for the bride to understand than her calling. Not not just her calling as as a bride, because it's not going to happen that way. It's not going to happen as a whole until the pieces are healthy. So it's, it's our individual right, if you will, To recognize our own calling as it fits into God's will. As it fits into the local body, as it fits into the entire body of Christ. I want to start with Elijah. Okay, I'm going to back up a second because as I was reading this this morning, and and we're we're actually going to key on the call of Elisha, but... I want to go backward a little bit with Elijah because there's something he did. We talked about it in the gifts meeting yesterday. I think that's where it was. Was it? Yes, I see people nodding. So we talked about it yesterday and what happened there was really quite tragic. And you don't think of that when you think of Elijah. Especially because God is not done with Elijah. Right? Even back then. There were, the spirit of Elijah was prophesied. And, and it, it continues. I believe he'll be one of the two witnesses, uh, that will be in the tribulation. Um, and, and, and that's simply because of his heart and his sold out heart for God. But there was something, and I can't even say the end of his life because he didn't die. There was something that happened at the end of his time on earth that was not of God. It was a reaction that God didn't want from him. And it's extraordinary because it has to do with our calling. And we do this all the time as the bride. So I want to back up. I want to start there. And then we're going to get into Elisha's calling. And then one other example of a calling. But I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. And... I'm I'm just going to start at verse 9 here. Because what's happened here, this is after just this tremendous victory. 
Okay, this was after Elijah went against the 450 prophets of Baal. And by the way, it wasn't just them. It was also the prophets of Ashereth. It was, it was huge. It was huge. These people that were coming against the living God. And Elijah, thinking he's the only one, which, which is kind of what he gets into in the woe is me. But thinking that he's against them all, and it doesn't faze him a bit. Have you, have you read through this? It's extraordinary. That, that's why the, the, the difference between Elijah during the, the showdown and after the showdown was, it's like, it's, okay, wait a second, is that the same person? No. Because you look at this and, and he steps up and he goes against them, declaring the word of the Lord with absolute faith in what God was going to do. Absolute faith. And what happened? God did it. God did it. I, I won't go through the story. You know the story. But God accepted his offering and destroyed all the prophets of Baal. And, and all these things that were going on was a cleansing of that place. Now, now by the way, this wasn't some foreign territory. This was Israel. This was Israel. Okay? That King Ahab, he was the king of Israel. Jezebel was the queen of Israel. Right? This was Israel. This was God's chosen people. And yet they wanted to worship Baal. So he stood up and he stood up boldly and he conquered. The father through him conquered. Right? And then Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. And, you know, Curse me, I will die if today you don't, you, you don't have the same fate as the ones that, that died there, right? So that's where we're at. Elijah runs, and that's where we're at as we begin verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, because he was running away. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, now, by the way, I want to point this out too, because it's important to get details of kind of the, the lay of the land. Right? It wasn't that, that Elijah said, God accept this sacrifice. God came down, accept the sacrifice, killed those around it, and then he ran. It wasn't like that. No, because all those that God did not kill, Elijah said, let's kill them. And he went and he slaughtered all these prophets of Baal, all the prophets, uh, it doesn't say that he slaughtered all the prophets of Ashereth, but they were there, so I'm assuming he did. All those who did not stand for God, he slaughtered with the people around him. So he was engaged. He didn't just shoot a gun and run. He was engaged in this. He was engaged in the war. He was engaged in the glory. He was engaged in the tremendous showing of God's power. But then he ran. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord. You could just picture him talking. God saying, Dude, like, what are you doing here? Right? They need you back there. With that, that thing that just happened over there, 
They, they need you over there. What are you doing in a cave? Why are you running? Why are you hiding? Did I not show my power? Okay, and, and you could just picture Elijah's response. Well, God, I've, I've just been jealous for you. Right, I'm, I'm doing all this for you. I'm here for you. And, and by the way, that was true. But he's falling into a pretty serious pity party here for a second. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Wow. And he said, go out and sit, this is God, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind toward the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Now you can, you can imagine, I don't know if this took some time, but I'm guessing it did. You know, you ever have times where you're, you're t- talking to the Lord and the Lord said, I'm going to say something to you, and then it's silent. Where'd you go, Lord? You said you were going to tell me. Lord, it's been days. It's been weeks. It's been months. You haven't told me yet. See, we read this story and it's in a few verses, so we assume that this is all happening sequentially and right away. Like like the father is saying, he said, Elijah, go to the front of the cave. I have something to say to you. So Elijah goes to the front of the cave. Don't assume that, that he's standing there and all of a sudden a great and strong wind passes by. And, nope, that wasn't him. Okay, uh, earthquake. Nope, that wasn't him. Okay, you know, and, and it all just happened like that. It wasn't like that. But after that earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. I mean, this is pretty tumultuous when you think of what's going on outside this cave. Might make you want to run back into the cave, right? After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance. (laughs) I don't know, maybe he was buried deep in the cave because he already went to the front of the cave. I mean, think about that. If he's going to the cave to hear the Lord and and then there's this big strong wind, he says, step back from the cave. Then Goes out, he hears this earthquake. Oh no, he's not in that. Goes back into the cave. Oh, there's a fire out there. Yeah, no, not in that. Goes back in the cave. He's sitting in the cave and he hears, it's me, the Lord. He didn't say what. He knew it was the Lord. He went to the front of the cave. And he knew it was the Lord. So when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What what are you doing here, Elijah? (laughs) Okay, we're back to verse, we're back to verse nine where the Lord said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So all that to bring it back to the same place that they were just before that. What are you doing here? It's like, dude, you you go through this tremendous thing and now you're hiding in a cave waiting for me to speak. 
looking for my voice in places that you shouldn't even be looking. Because, see, I was with you there. Why'd you leave? Why'd you leave? And he said again, I have been very jealous for the Lord and the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. This is where I'm going to guess one of the saddest points of Elijah's life was. See, why... Why did God go through the wind, the earthquake, the fire? To ask him the same question that he asked him before those things. See, recognize that he asked him the question and Elijah gave him the answer. Okay, then then days, perhaps weeks, perhaps months, who knows? I don't know how long went by with God doing these things outside of the cave. It probably wasn't months, but I would imagine it was days. To give him a second. To get over whatever fear he had of Jezebel. And just say once again, I trust you. But there was something going on with Elijah. See, nowadays we call it burnout. We call it this this tired place where we get to a place that, I just cannot do this anymore. It's like it takes too much effort. And and we sometimes we get that way because we're physically tired. That's that's actually not mostly, but sometimes we are physically tired because we're literally pushing twenty hour days and boom 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 whatever. That's not the most normal. The most normal is that we have an internal tired. That we're fighting this fight every day. And and by the way, you see it certainly in ministry, but I'm not talking about ministry right now. I'm talking about relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the turmoil that you go through in your own life day to day. One, trying to learn his voice. Two, trying to discern what he's speaking to you, what he's trying to show you, what steps you're to take in your life. And so many times through this process, we start to take our eyes off what brought us there in the first place. Because, see, we stick with some things that work. Well, I know if I did this, I pleased you before, so I'm, I'm going to keep doing this. Now it becomes this job. We call it ministry. But if I, if I just keep doing this, then you'll be pleased with me, Lord. If, if I keep just moving through this process without really filling up the part of our relationship with him that keeps us going. You see so much burnout when it comes to this. You see it a lot in pastors because pastors will pour out the knowledge they have of the word instead of pouring out the relationship that they've built with the Lord. See, if they pour out the relationship, all it would do is strengthen their relationship. That's all it would do. 
It literally would become a feeding for them. I, I know this because I've been on both sides. That's how it is for me now. This is as much a feeding for me as it is for you. But before, I, I understand the other side, because before it would get tiring because I, I'm, I'm so concentrating. I remember when, when I taught Genesis to, to a, an adult Bible group, and it was large, there were about a hundred there, but it took us two years to get through, I think, the first six chapters, and we laugh about that because we're in Genesis now in, in the college group. But I remember going to that each Sunday morning when I would go to teach. I, I, was, I was so drained because I had to make sure I had all the information. Because my job was just to take this information that I have dug and I have learned and to put it on a platter and offer it to those people. Now, is that a bad thing? No. But you know what happens? The more I did that, the more difficult it became because it was burdensome. Because it was pouring out without the filling up. It was filling up my mind, certainly. But there's a danger there with pride. So see, when you pour out of your relationship with Christ, whether you're preaching, whether you're leading worship, whether you're, you're counseling with somebody, whatever it is, if you're pouring out with your relationship with Christ then you're literally filling up at the same time because that's, that's how he does it. But the sad thing here with Elijah is after that process, that time that the Lord gave him, right, with the wind, the earthquake, the fire, his answer was the same. He's saying, Lord, but I, Lord, but I, but I, I can't get past this mountain that has just risen in my life. This, this thing that in his case was fear. And, and probably lonely. There are probably a few things going on here. Certainly fear from Jezebel, but he was probably lonely. He was probably a little woe is me. God, this isn't fair. I mean, even Adam you gave somebody. <laughs> right? We talked about that in, in uh, Genesis this week, right? So he had nobody. He's in this cave by himself. And, and so you can imagine what's going on in his, in his mind, okay? I want you to really think of that in your own life, in your own heart. Times when you start to get depressed about what's going on with your life, about the moving forward of your life, about the moving forward even of ignition, about the moving forward of what God wants. Think about those emotions. Don't we fight those same emotions? We fight those emotions of loneliness. We fight those emotions of that's not fair. Why am I the only one that has to deal with this feeling? Right? We all fight those. But see, God gives us an opportunity. He gives us an opportunity to turn around and say, okay, hold on, these emotions aren't right. Lord, I give this to you. I give this to you because I'm reacting wrong. I give this to you. He gave Elijah that opportunity, 
And when he came and asked him the same question again, he got the same exact answer. Now, do you wonder here why God didn't say, look, man, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. Let me explain why I gave you those moments to get over this. He didn't do that. What did he do? Let's go on. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Read between the lines. What was God saying? God was, he, he didn't even say, like, pat him on, it's okay, it's okay, you know, we could get through this. We'll move on. Why? First of all, because Elijah was a warrior. I think also because God knew he wasn't done with him yet. That he is, he is coming back. That's why he was taken up in a chariot of fire. But it was like, I need a different attitude in my prophets. The attitude that you had just, just a little bit ago when you faced the 450 prophets of Baal. That attitude, that's the attitude I need. Why? Because Jezebel's still alive. King Ahab is still alive. Baal is still prolific within the area. And that needs to be taken care of. That needs to be conquered. No, he didn't explain all that to him. He just said, okay, okay. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to do these three things because it's really important. Because of your position, it's really important for you to anoint the next phase of my plan. And that's what he did. So I want to point out before, as we're getting into this recognition of our calling, I want to, I wanted to go backward for a second to, to get you to understand that even if you are in the midst of your calling, it's so important to understand that our focus on Jesus Christ and our focus on relationship with Him is the only thing, the only thing that you're to focus on. It's not the only thing you'll do. But see, the difference is you want Him to do it through you instead of you doing it on your own. Because when we take life on our own, we're going to run from Jezebel. We're going to. But when we let him operate through us, we're going to stand up to the 450 prophets of Baal. And it won't even be an issue. It won't even, we'll, we'll, I mean, this is going to sound sick, but we'll have fun doing it. I mean, don't think for a second Elijah didn't have fun. You know, I mean, you could say, well, yeah, but all these people died. Yeah, I get it. I understand. 
I, I got to tell you, though, I understand Elijah's mentality there. And I could tell you he had fun because he was mocking them. He said, where is your God? Maybe he's out back going to the bathroom. Right? So that, that is a stark contrast of how we make choices in our life and how God can work through us. We can work through, let him work through in boldness or we can run in fear. So now we have the call of Elisha. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. He was walking beside the 12th, leading them. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, which, by the way, they knew what that meant. That was him throwing his mantle, which it says here in a second, but... And he left the oxen, Elisha did, and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again for what I have done to, or go back again for what I have done to you. That, what he was saying there, well, let me finish and then I'll explain it. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen, oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Basically, what was said here is Elijah goes and he throws his cloak over Elisha, symbolizing you're taking my place. Right? You will become this apprentice that will, you are, you are, and this, this is a, a very, uh, uh, huge, huge calling, you can imagine. But, it, but it's not like, hey, I'm about to die here, take this, see ya. Right? It's, he threw it over him to bring him in as, a, as an apprentice, and then he would take over what he's doing. But I want you to recognize the very first thing that Elisha said. Wait, wait, wait a second, can I, can I go and kiss my family? Now, now, by the way, it wasn't, don't picture like he is, right outside the family home, and he's plowing, and, oh, give me five minutes, I just need five minutes, let me go kiss my, kiss my mom and dad goodbye, and I'll be right with you. That's not what he was saying, okay? When, when, in Jewish tradition, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, if in Jewish tradition, what I've learned is that saying goodbye to their family was saying goodbye when they die, okay? It was, it was saying, Wait, give me just a little bit of time because my parents are aged and I'm doing all this for them. I'm the only one that does this for them. Can I kiss my parents goodbye first? Make sure they're okay. Okay, that's more of what was going on. What was Elijah's response? It was basically, did you not just hear what I said? Did you not just hear what I said? Do you not understand what this means? See, the calling in a Christian's life is a call to obedience immediately. Now that isn't to say that he's not supposed to love his family. I, I don't think it had anything to do with his family. I think if he dropped everything, stepped up to, to Elijah, if the Lord wanted him to, to do something with his family, he would have said, okay, 
awesome, let's, let's take a couple days, get your family situated, then we're leaving. Right? It's the first response. It's the first response is how our heart is judged. The first response when you hear God's voice telling you to do something and you know it's Him. Now, I, I get it if you don't know it's Him yet. Okay, but the moment you know, you know in your heart that you're supposed to do something, you know he's the one that's told you, it's, there's not a doubt in your mind, your first reaction is what tells your heart. It's what shows your heart for God. It's like the, the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt and they went into the, the spies went into the land for the first time and they were told, you know, this, this incredible land. This incredible land that is ours. And, and it was promised over and over and over again that it was theirs. In fact, they, that's why they were brought out of Egypt in the first place. To give them the land. And what was their first reaction? Their first reaction was no. No, we'll be killed. That was their first reaction. But yet what we don't, we think of that and then we think, yeah, then they went into the wilderness for 40 days or for 40 years. No, look at it. They changed their mind. They said, wait, wait, wait. Okay, uh, um, you know, after God came through and said, now you will, you will, you know, you're, you're cursed and you're gonna travel the wilderness for 40 years until, until this, this adulthood, all those I think it was over 20, die out. They said, oh, oh, we changed our mind. We're gonna go in and we're gonna do it. And they go in and they did not have the power of God. Right? So their first reaction, their initial reaction, carried weight on how God worked with them. That's why it's important to say yes before you know what you're saying yes to. Because you're just saying yes to God. Yes, Lord. I, I tell people all the time, I, I talked with Caleb this week a couple times, and 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 I, I just said, I said to him before, I said, just wake up every morning saying yes, and he said, he said, that's what I'm doing, and I, I say it all throughout the day. Yes, God. Yes, God. Whatever you want. Yes. See, recognize that's not a yes in response to something God said. That's a preemptive yes. That's... I don't know what you have, Lord, but yes. Yes, I give you my yes. See, that's what he wants. He doesn't want our wait to kind of see what am I saying yes to. He wants our yes, regardless. Our calling is something that's, that's key to our lives. Every one of you in here has a calling. Every one of you, and I've said it a thousand times, if you're part of Ignition at this point, you have a significant calling. You have a piece of the puzzle that if you don't step up in your calling, it's, it's not that, well, well, we'll get by and we'll be fine. No, it has to be replaced. Your calling is important. Your calling is critical. Your yes to that is even more critical. That initial response, when he threw his cloak on Elisha, Elisha knew what that meant. His first response should have been, yes. Now he did respond, right? 
Right? Elijah said, wait, didn't you, didn't you understand what I just said? And his response was, oh yes, and he did respond right, and he did, he, he, I mean, imagine the feast they had with those 12 ox. Kind of makes me hungry right now. <laughs> but he did respond right. Praise God. And he moved on. I want to turn to another one, and this one's extraordinary to me. I want you to turn to First John. Or, I'm sorry, John 1. John chapter 1. And we're going to talk about Peter. He was called as one of the first four disciples. Jesus called him. But at his calling, Jesus pronounces something extraordinary. Okay? Now, Peter didn't know him, or in this, at this point, he's Simon. We hear him as Simon Peter, right? But he says something extraordinary over Peter. I want to just point out here, and then we're going to go to uh, the, um, the book of Matthew for the second part of this. But verse 41 of chapter 1, he says, He first found his brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, Cephas is actually in... Uh, um, uh, it, it's in Aramaic. It means Peter in Aramaic. And then... Uh, and Peter is, is Greek. But he immediately calls him Peter. I wanted to show you that. But now I want you to turn to Matthew 16. Because it goes into a little bit more detail about why he changed his name. And why he he changed what he was going to be called. Verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16 says this. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, now I know there's a play on words there, because I grew up and preachers would always preach that, that really Jesus is talking about himself. And, and he was, because Jesus, we know later, is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone of that building that was called the church, or that is called the church. He's the cornerstone and everything is built upon it. But he was also talking about Peter. We know that as we move through the book of Acts, we understand how the church is built upon him. But I want, so I, I want to look at it from that aspect. I tell you, you are Peter, which means the rock, by the way. That's, that's why it's also a play on words. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I picture when Jesus is saying this to him, I picture him going like this. You're Peter, and on this rock, right? On this rock I will build my church. Because his church was built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. But it was in, in agreement with Peter. Why? Because Jesus was going to go on and ascend, die and ascend, 
die, raise from the dead, and ascend to heaven. And the church was going to be built on the rock that was Peter. Right? On this foundational stone that was Peter. He's, Jesus is saying something extraordinary here, guys. Then he quantifies it in verse 19. He said, as that rock that I'm going to build upon, I will give you the keys of heaven. Of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He didn't say, I'll give you the right to come to heaven. That's not, he was saying, that's not what he was saying. He was given the keys to access the kingdom of God. Matthew 6.33 In this realm. In this realm. It's what we deal with every day of our lives. Recognizing that we live in a realm that has so much more going on outside that we, that we recognize. Right? We're stuck in four dimensions, including time. And yet there are at least ten. So, so there's six more we, we don't recognize. Unless God gives us a key. And when he gives us a key, we can begin to see into that. We have seers in here. We have those who, who hear. Right? Just recently, and I've shared this with you, recently the Lord has been, been giving me this, I've said before, I don't feel a lot of things, but, but, uh, but I've been recognizing when witchcraft is really heavy. And, and my body starts to shake, but it's not the inside of me. It literally feels like the outside is shaking. And, and, and you know, like I'll lean over Alex, do you feel that? It feels like an earthquake. It's coming from the outside. And it, 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 what the Lord told me is, is it's literally the rustle of the wings of the warring angels that are at war around me at that time. See, that's a key, guys. That's a key. The Lord gives us a key to recognize in His realm. Why? Because that's where the real battles fought. If you want to be a warrior for Christ and you're not open to the gifts, hey, good luck to you. You, you may as well just go sit in a room somewhere because you're not going to be effective. First of all, we're coming to a point now where the only effective Christians will be the yes Christians. Amen. Those who build their relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the time has been coming and it is now here where that lukewarm will not be tolerated anymore. Now, not that they will lose their salvation. That's, this has nothing to do with salvation. Nothing to do with them going to hell or heaven. Nothing to do with that. It has to do with their fruits of the Spirit. It has to do with their love, their peace, their joy, their patience. It has to do with their calling. Right? So he was given the keys to access this area that has the warfare, that has all the powerful declarations. Why? Because he said, 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in that realm. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in that realm. Don't assume for a second that every Christian gets that, because they don't. And that's been one of the one of the worst derails of the church, of the bride today. It, it saddens my heart when I see these charismatic churches that believe in, in, in the, the voice of God and they believe that he speaks, they believe in all his giftings, but they take it into their own hands. And no different than the legalistic churches, they operate out of knowledge instead of by giving their yes to God. Because they build out of something that works, they build a program. And say, well, this has worked. This is how God did it this time. So we'll build a program around it so it'll work that way every time. And it just doesn't. Because God is fresh every day. He wants relationship with us so he can do it through us every day. So the people who are given this, you know, you notice he didn't say this to everybody who was with him. Now he ended up saying this to all the disciples and we saw evidence of this in Acts. But the evidence was with those who had relationship with Jesus Christ. He, remember where, where he changed his name, right? He changed his name when he first met him. Well, he began to tell him his calling. Peter, Peter, this is your calling. Do you not understand? I need you to understand that, that it's on your faith, on your faith in relationship with me that I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church on your faith. So I need you to recognize that, Peter. And, and to do that, I'm going to give you everything you need to do that. Here are these keys. Here are these keys so you can see. So you can hear. You can hear my voice. You can see my voice when I'm gone. Because I'm not going to be here forever. See, at this point, he's hearing Jesus Christ in the physical. Because Jesus was in the physical realm. But he's saying, I'm giving you these keys. So when I leave, when I conquer death, and I go to sit at the right hand of my father, you've got these keys to have the same relationship with me that we have right now. Even, even though now you can physically hear my voice, use these keys and you will be able to hear my voice again. Now, at this point, Peter, he doesn't understand this. I mean, clearly. So, two things. First of all, why Jesus declare it? Because it's important to declare in this realm what God's will is. There's a power in that. There's a power in that. But he also, he wants Peter to understand his calling. He wants Peter to understand that how important he is. How important he is to, to what God has planned. You know, we know the end from the beginning in, in terms of Peter's life and, and what he did for the early church. You know, we can look and say, oh my goodness, God just used him. I mean, Pentecost alone, 3,000 people came to know Christ. And that was the first time Peter spoke. 
You know, the power that he had in Peter. We could see that. See, Peter couldn't. Peter couldn't see that. What was Peter's background? He was a fisherman. In fact, I, I, I get the impression that he's one of these guys that, a little socially awkward, you know? When things are tough, he probably didn't go home to his wife and just kind of talk through things. He was one of these guys, and, and I say this because when Jesus died on the cross, what did he do? You know, after they heard that he rose and he's all confused and things are just not what he thought they'd be, what did he do? He went fishing. He said, guys, I'm going fishing, man, because that's, that's my only solace. I've got to get away from people. He just went fishing. I think that's where Peter knew who he was. So now all of a sudden he's in the center of this. He's called by God to be one of these 12. He's walking with him. And, and, and Jesus is saying, dude, I know you don't understand this, but I'm going to build this whole thing on you. And Peter's like, okay. He didn't understand. But see, Jesus needed to let him know. That was the first call. That was the first mark of his calling, of how important he was. So so they spent three and a half years building relationship. Right? He got to see who Jesus was. Was. He was the, Peter was the first one to declare he was God. When everybody else wanted to run away and every, and, and Jesus, Jesus said, who do you think I am? And Peter said, well, you're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're who we've been waiting for. See, through this process, there's no doubt that he built relationship with Peter because Peter knew. How did he know? Because Jesus told him no. If you read that scripture, it says he knew because the Father hath revealed it to him. So, so what's really happening here? Peter, who's building this relationship with Jesus Christ, is actually what? Building that relationship with the Father. So now the Father is beginning to speak to him. He doesn't even know it. He just knew that Jesus was the Christ. He knew he was the one. And he trusted in that. So much so, that right before Jesus' death, and you all know these stories, but I wanted to walk through this this story with Peter because it's extraordinary. Right before Jesus' death, you know, Jesus foretells his denial, or uh, Peter's denial. Of Jesus Christ, of knowing Jesus when he's when he's at, on trial, and let's turn to uh, John chapter thirteen. John chapter thirteen, verse thirty-six, and Jesus says, "Simon Peter, or, or I'm sorry, uh, Simon. Let me hold on. Let's, yeah, no, okay, we'll start at thirty-six. Simon Peter said to him." Lord, where are you going? Or said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, 
Why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That's like saying, I know you're excited. I know you're excited about what what I'm doing in your life. But there's still something there that needs to be gone. There's still something that there that, that when the right thing happens, that Satan knows, Satan knows that button that he's going to press. And when the right thing happens, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me because, because you don't have that one thing in place yet. You know, Jesus also said, and I won't turn to it now, but Jesus also said that Satan had asked to sift Peter. And Jesus prayed against that, that, that Peter would be fine. And, and he even said, and you will be fine. Cause he's telling Peter this. I don't know. How, how would you feel if the Lord told you, you know, you're about to be sifted. All right. But you're going to be fine. Cause I prayed. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure how to, how to, do you say thank you? <laughs> do, thank you. Thank you. I'll thank you afterwards. Yes. Thank you. But recognize what had to happen in Peter's life was the very thing where he said, I will lay my life down for you. And then he literally ran from that very statement. The same thing, the same thing that Elijah did, where he stood up against those prophets of Baal, And then he literally ran from that same thing. He had to take Peter through this. And, of course, Jesus had prayed against his sifting and that he would be fine through this. But understand that part of his calling was breaking off the human reaction to what he would do. His human reaction, oh man, I'll lay my life down for you. Human reaction. The reality of that human reaction was there was no strength. There was no strength to do that. Because if he had made that statement in the spirit and in relationship with Jesus Christ, he would have been on trial with Jesus. Now, we won't turn there, but to look at Peter's last days of his life, Stark difference. Stark difference. Right? It was, it was to his honor to be killed in the name of Jesus. To his honor. It wasn't, I'll lay my life down for you, Lord. No, it was humility. Because he recognized the gravity of that sacrifice. He recognized the gravity of his calling, that his calling had come to a close, and yet what was about to happen was perhaps the greatest part of his life. It was to give everything, to give his last breath. See, he had to be tested in this way. Jesus knew he would fail. 
Because that part of his relationship had to be purged out of there. And, and it wasn't like an overnight thing either. Right? We, we talked about it a few minutes ago. It was, you know, Peter goes through, he denies him, he runs away, he's, he's distraught. I mean, think about it. Your best friend, you just spent three and a half years building this relationship with, knowing it would go on. You got these keys to talk to him after he goes, and you, all these things that you've been told. And now, now fear jumped in, and you denied the very thing you said that you would do. Imagine how he felt. Imagine. So it's, it's, it's no wonder he was distraught. And I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go fishing. I'm just going to get out of here. I don't even want to see the other ten of you get out of my face. Because I don't know how to deal with myself. Not because he didn't believe it was real. He believed it was real. But because how he felt about his own failure. Boy, sometimes... We let our failures really drag us down. And they're not supposed to. And they don't need to. Because see, it was the very failure of that portion right there that effectively enabled him to be the rock that the church was built upon. I want you to turn just a few chapters down, John chapter 21. Now this is after <laughs> Peter goes fishing, right? He's out there fishing. He's distraught. He's, he's unhappy. And Jesus, you know, Jesus kind of uh, walks along the beach, kind of starts this fire with a couple fish, and, and he yells out to him, Hey, how's it going? They said, well, not, not, not too good. And he said, okay, cast the, cast the nets on the other side. I think it was the right side. I can't remember. And then they did, and there was this insane, insane amount of fish they got. And, and John said, look, it, it's, it's the Messiah. It's Jesus. And Peter's like, what? <laughs> right into the... He didn't even want to wait for it to be rowed in. He was going to get into that water, get to him as fast as he could... Why? Because the sifting was over. Because the relationship that he thought he had lost was there, was standing right there. Right there in front of him. He was going to let nothing stand in the way of getting between him and Jesus. Nothing. And, and I have to think that He's probably thinking, I could probably swim faster than this boat can row. And whatever time I get there first, I get to be with him. He was hungry. He was hungry for Jesus. He just wanted Jesus. And, and so they have this little feast and they're all, hey, you know, high fives, whatever. And he pulls Peter aside. And they're just talking. In verse 15 of chapter 21, said this, when they had finished breakfast, which by the way, okay, I have an issue. Who eats fish for breakfast? Do people really do that? Okay, that's just nasty. 
Eggs for breakfast, people. Cheerios, maybe. No, okay, anyway. Fish and home fries. All right, fish and home fries. There you go. Well, I suppose they do chicken and waffles, so why not fish and waffles, right? All right, I'll stick with my eggs. Okay, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? By the way, when we go through this, I want you to recognize something here. Right off the bat, what did he say to him? He didn't call him Peter. He didn't call him Peter. He called him Simon. He called him the original name in which he met him. Not the, ma- not the name in which he said, you are now called because you're the rock that I'm going to build this upon. See, instead, you're Simon. We're going to see if you're Peter, but you're Simon. And he goes into this process that is interesting. I I actually, until the Lord revealed it to me last night, I didn't really understand it. When they had finished breakfast, he said, Simon, son of John, or some of yours say Simon Barjona, which means son of John. Do you love me more than these? And you can imagine Jesus kind of pointing out, out over the city. Over these people. Or perhaps maybe he was pointing over the other ten disciples. I don't know. Do you love me more than them? Because they were the ones that were there. I don't know. Simon, and and he he said, said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, what's going on here was an establishment of what Peter had learned. Are you going to let the things of this earth affect your calling? Even when you're questioned. But in your own lives, are you going to affect, are are you going to let The things of this earth, the things, the troubles that you run into, troubles at work, or maybe losing that job, right? Troubles with a relationship, troubles with your car. (laughs) My poor wife has no heat in her car. I offered my truck to her. She wouldn't take it. Are are you going to let these things affect how you operate in your relationship with Christ. Are they going to affect you? See, that's what he's really asking Peter here. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Have you ever talked with someone or you seen a conversation with like, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Uh, no, are, are you ready? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. No, really. Are you ready? It's like, Yeah, I'm ready. This is a sobering moment for Peter, who claims 
that he is ready. <laughs> he may not have been ready for the next statement, however, although I, I, he, he obviously was, because Jesus said, okay, I have this calling on your life, and if you're really ready to feed my sheep, to feed my lambs, then he throws this next statement out at him. Truly, truly, I say to you, because you're ready and because you say yes, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, you could be confused about that statement or you could read the next verse. Because it says he was explaining to Peter how he was going to die. He was explaining to him that his death will not be a natural death. It will be at the hands of others who will control his death. So he said, are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Well, yeah, I've I've said yeah. I'm really ready, God. Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Here's how it's going to end for you. Now, I imagine they had this conversation, but don't forget all the things I've taught you for three and a half years. Because what is going to happen is going to make you literally excited about that moment. Do you know, I think Peter was excited that that moment would come. Because in his death, he was so honored to die at the hands of those against Christ. Now, I'm not saying to everybody in here, get your calling because you're going to die. That's not what I'm saying. That's not the point. But are you ready? Think about that question. Are you really ready? Because, see, being ready means a complete yes. It means that God has every single part of me. He has my work. He has my relationships. He has my finances. He has, you know, my desires. He has everything. And he's saying, are you ready? I know he is bringing up this again. Because just like Peter, Peter had no idea what was about to happen. You guys have no idea what's about to happen. And just like Peter, it was extraordinary. It was the birthing of something new. It was the birthing of the bride. God is doing something new again. It's not the birthing of the bride. But see, she's been proposed to, and she's got to get ready. It's the readying of the bride. And what he's going to do is extraordinary. And much like what they experienced, because you you go, you know, this is the end of John, and, and just a few days after this, you know, G, Jesus ascends into heaven. This, I believe it was that same day, and ten days later, they're at Pentecost. And everything changed. Everything changed from that moment 
that they were waiting for, that they were worshiping for, that they were pressing in so hard for. That moment came in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit fell. And it wasn't just, just that everybody got a key so they can hear. No, the Holy Spirit manifest. Why do you think people came running to the upper room? It's because they heard it. It's because they saw the fire. They came because they saw. And these were people that didn't have keys. They weren't even people that were saved. They came because those keys were used by those who had been given keys. And the Holy Spirit fell. And when He fell, it was manifest in reality, in our reality. That's going to happen again. And it's happened in part a few times. We call them revivals. But this one's going to be different, guys. This one's going to be way different. And we don't even know what all that means. But we know it is for the specific purpose of readying his bride, of drawing a line in the sand, to say no more can you just rely on knowledge. And, well, you know, I'm kind of living this good life, so I'll be okay. No more will lukewarm be allowed. It will be hot or cold. Don't think saved or unsaved. That's not what that means. Because that letter was written to saved people. Right? It was written to the church. So, so cold or hot, they're both saved. And lukewarm. And he's saying, I would rather you cold or hot. Why would God say that, by the way? Now, first of all, they're all going to heaven because they're all saved. That's who he was writing to. But why would he rather a lukewarm person, or not lukewarm, I would rather them be cold or hot? Because it's in that lukewarm that Satan can use you. He's not going to use you as a cold Christian. Why? You have no effectiveness. As a cold Christian, you have, no, you, you have no influence. People probably don't even know you're a Christian. But as a lukewarm, you could do damage. And the lukewarm has done damage. Has done damage to the bride. Has done damage to the Christian testimony. Yeah, I mean, Christians, it, when, when you hear the term Christian today, of course, first of all, that's a pretty generic term. Because that's not, in, in the world's eyes, a Christian isn't necessarily somebody who has received Christ as Savior. That's what we think of them as. That's what the Bible, uh, you know, references them as. But they think of it more as a label of your religious belief system. Okay, but but imagine what it looks like for Christians today and and what that means. I mean, the world is like, you hear all the time, they're, they're worse than, than the world. They're worse than people that aren't Christians. That comes from that lukewarm state, guys. And we're at a point in history where God said no more. He is, through his sword, the word of God that rightly divides, he is eliminating the lukewarm. 
people will have to have a choice or have to make a choice. I will be hot or I will be made to be cold. There won't be any middle of the road anymore. And we know this. But see, this group right here, this group right here, you have a calling for what God is going to do in ignition, and it's important that you understand that calling. It's important that that you recognize that it is bigger than what surrounds you. See, he was trying to get Peter to understand that. See, it's it's bigger than these other ten guys here. Uh, by the way, Peter, Peter it's, it's bigger than this city here. It's bigger than everything. He needed Peter to understand that, that his only focus, because that would have been overwhelming if he would have said, you know, the, the entire known world, you're going to have an effect of. Right? Which, which, by the way, he did tell him that earlier, when Peter really didn't understand what he was saying. But if he would have told him right now that you're going to affect millions and and even after you're gone, billions of people, that would have been a little overwhelming for Peter, right? So all Peter had to do was focus on Jesus and focus on feeding his sheep, caring for his lambs. That's all he had to focus on. Jesus said, I'll do the rest. I'll do the rest. You don't have to do anything more than that. And that's where we're at. Don't be overwhelmed with your calling. You may know your calling. You may not even yet know your calling. Don't be overwhelmed in what that looks like physically. Don't be overwhelmed in the fact that of what God has said he's going to do in this church, and you're part of this church at this point, which we've said many. So don't be overwhelmed in that. Like, like, I can't even picture my place in that, God. Or, or I'm not really involved in any, anything yet. You haven't really put me in a place where, where I'm involved in this, so I can't picture myself in that. And, and it's overwhelming to me, Lord, to, to think that, that I'm going to have this huge part in what you're doing. Don't let that overwhelm you. Because it's not your choice anyways. Let it be God that takes your foot and says, oh man, you have no idea what I'm going to do with you, but just trust me. Just trust me because I love you and I'm going to place your foot. And, and if, if you trust me, guess what else? You're going to enjoy it. You're going to love it. Why? Because I know you and you, you, I know the things you love. And when you're in relationship with me, Jesus says, I know the things you love because I literally input them into you. Because he forms us into that peace that we're supposed to be. You don't have to be overwhelmed by your calling, guys. If, if he has placed on your life that you're going to be speaking in front of thousands and tens of thousands of people, okay, for some people that could be really overwhelming. But it doesn't have to be. How do you walk through a calling that's overwhelming like that. Just knowing that he has your feet. Just knowing that, that it will be a stepped process where he will build the confidence. Do you, do you think that at this point, right after he said, you know, 
do you love me? Yes, three times and all that. Do you think at that point, Peter could have stood up and preached to 3,000 people and had the same effectiveness? Of course not. Of course not. Because he took Peter through a process that readied him. So when Peter did stand up at Pentecost, there was power. There was power. See, he had already physically prepared the situation with Peter. And all that was left was the Holy Spirit needed to be infused in a portion that they had never seen. That's where we are. That's where we are, guys. Don't be afraid of what the Lord is going to do. Don't be afraid of how he's going to use you. Don't be afraid that he's not going to use you. Don't be afraid because you think, well, I don't, I don't see my, my place. I don't see my spot. Don't be afraid of that. Just trust him. Because he will prepare every point. He will. And at that moment, at that moment, when it's to begin in your life, just like Peter, you'll stand up and you'll do exactly what he's fashioned you to do. And it'll all, everything will come together. Everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we worship you and praise you. We thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, for your mercy. God, we thank you that you choose to work through people. I thank you, God, and I thank you every day that you have chosen to work through this church. And that you're bringing people together in this, in this assembly. I, I don't even want to say local assembly because so many are not even local to us right now. But you're bringing people together of like mind, of like heart, of like relationship with you. But God, I pray, I pray for each person here to recognize their calling. Recognize the place that you have put them in this process, even though they may not see what's about to happen. But you have placed them here. You've promised to guide their feet. And all they have to do is focus on you and build a relationship with you. I pray that in everyone's life there is no hesitation. I pray in everyone's life there is no reliance on knowledge or even history. But the reliance is only on their relationship with you. And purely a yes to you and what you want to do in their lives. I thank you, Father. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. I was challenged. I don't know about you. I, I uh, what a critically important word that that is today. And 
I don't know why. There were two questions that kind of came to me. One is that when we look at the word calling, it kind of it kind of um, seems so big and so far away. And I was thinking, okay, what does that mean? Because I know for people, Greg, Greg and I have a, a two different paradigms that God has meshed together. He has an extraordinary gift of faith, so he's always, as we joke about, he's always at the 30,000 foot, and I always tend to be on the ground, the implementation of it, and step by step. And so as I'm listening to the message, I'm, I'm listening through my own ears, but through the ears of others that are like, okay, but what does that mean for right now? Like, okay, I get this calling. God wants me to do this. But what does this mean for my today, for my this afternoon? And the analogy that came to me was Rocky. Again, Rocky, because I used that a few weeks ago. But this is in one of the times when he won. And he was showing me, Rocky the, the fighter, he was showing me that, you know, in the fight, he had to commit himself to, in accepting that he would be a fighter and, and hoping to win, he had to commit himself to the trainer. And the trainer, every single day, would give him a series of workouts to strengthen him to be ready for the fight. And it's interesting because I kept thinking that through. I thought, okay, maybe that's dumb. There are some applications because I thought he had to... Every day, it wasn't just about the fight, because obviously fighters fight various matches, but he had to be ready, and the only way he could be ready is to let the trainer who assessed him and assessed the fight and his, his uh, you know, opponent, to let him train him. That's why, you know, as a fighter, he put himself in his hands. Okay, I'll, I'll let you train me. So when he would go into work or go into the gym every day or get up at 5 a.m. and run, it was because he was submitting to the plan that the trainer had. And I thought, in a weird way, I thought, you know, that trainer is kind of like the Holy Spirit. He guides us through and says, okay, I'm gonna, we're going to do a little, few extra of these today because there, I notice a weakness in this, in some of your movements. And, and, and tomorrow we're going to do double on this. Uh, the next day is going to be a rest day. And then, you know, Friday we're going to do three sets of this so that you can strengthen this. And, and it's like we have this plan that God guides us through. But it, life isn't just about the fight. Do you remember the one, the one movie where the, the, his friend, Rocky's friend, was up against the Russian? I think that was Rocky IV. And he was all about the, the wow and the, the spectacle of the event of the fight and did not take seriously his training. And when he came up against the Russian, he was crushed. You know, it was all about the wow. And I thought, wow, how often we do that. We get maybe caught, caught up in the calling itself. And we don't take seriously the day-to-day. Some of us, all of us, I think, in this room, online even, we're like, yes, Lord, yes, I want the calling, I want the calling. The victory in the calling is the sum total of your surrender to that plan that's going to train you for that fight, for that battle. You know, if Rocky decides he doesn't want to get up at 5 a.m. that morning and, and run, or the next day he doesn't want to do those drills, yeah, you know what, I'm just not up to it today. I'm just not, I'm just not going to do that. I'm just not going to do it. Every time there would be disobedience to the trainer's plan, who is assessing him, he's putting himself in a vulnerable position of weakness when he faces the match, his opponent in, in that, that particular match. 
And so I thought, okay, Lord, how is that? Because all this is like running through my mind. I'm like, how is that applying to me? And it's really what Greg said at the very beginning. When we seek the Lord in relationship and we just fill up on him, don't ever say no to him in the little things. Sometimes we, we like to say yes in the big thing because it just seems so lofty and so far out there. Now, some of us are the opposite. I get it. But some of us are like, yes, I want to be, I want to be used of you, God. But then when it comes to open my word, spend a little more time in prayer. Oh, yeah, I just, I just want, just want to do that. The victory, the calling is the sum total of our daily drawing to him, surrender to him. So it really is, um, it, it, it allows you to, if you do get overwhelmed with the idea of the calling or the, or the battle that you're in, then the sum total of, of every day will make that even easier because you're like, Lord, it's just you through me. It's not me. I can't do anything. I can barely stay awake reading two chapters of my Bible. You know, you might struggle with that. You know, these, sometimes they're demonic spirits of slumber that literally hit you when you try to read or focus on the word. And so we have battles every single day. So don't think that it's just the yes to the calling itself. It's the yes this afternoon. Are you going to let the Holy Spirit take your thoughts and words captive today at lunch in just a few minutes? Are you going to show Jesus to the family member that you're going to have to face when you go home today or, or next week or whenever, you know, to your employer? Like, what does that look like? Because even on those levels, there are victories to be won. And the more we allow ourselves to be trained in the little areas, then the readiness of the big come. Some of us battled being on this prayer call every single night. For many of us now, it's a new normal. How does that happen? That happens by each day saying, oh man, is it 8.30 again? Okay, Lord. Okay. Yep. Yep. I'm going to set this aside. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm already exhausted. I don't know how I'm going to stay up, but God, I'm going to choose you for today. Well, then today turns into choosing him tomorrow. Tomorrow turns into choosing him the next day. And I'm not talking about perfect attendance. You, you get my analogy. All of a sudden, you have a new normal in your life where you are praying every night on a prayer call that seemed insane that a church would do a seven nights a week prayer call. So if God is transforming us into a new normal that will be equipped for the calling that is coming, he's got to start with what, how we're transforming in little ways right now. Yeah. So in the analogy of the Rocky, yeah, we're, we may, he may be battling the few extra drills of the sit-ups, but boy, when his opponent is pummeling him and that muscle is strong and it's coming against what he's built in those sit-ups because of obedience, it's going to bounce off if you can run with that analogy, okay? And it's the same with us in the spirit. Amen. When we are obedient every day and we just say, yes, Lord, in all the little things, yes, Lord, I trust you that you will redeem the sleep I lose by giving you this first. I will trust you that you will that, that you will redeem whatever I, I, I have to sacrifice to help someone or to, uh, you know, whatever God, God's asking you to do, to step out. You're going to redeem the fact that I'm going to feel foolish if I pray for somebody in the Wawa. You know, you're, you're, I'm going to trust you with these little steps. And they lead to the bigger things. So, um, you know, I had to first just submit to that first little step, you know, the first time I went to Africa and... and 
you know, that's how the whole trip came about. And that's how now, for me, a new normal is beginning. And it doesn't mean that it's easier. It just means I'm learning to trust him more. Okay? Because he will keep us in a place of dependency. But man, thank God. Thank God that it's him and not us. So don't forget that new nature. And we talked about that this morning. But don't forget, we have a new nature. And it is in that nature that the Spirit of God dwells. And it is him through us. But it starts with today, right now, in obedience. Today, tonight, tomorrow morning, whatever God's asking you to do, when you obey in those little steps, you will begin to see that lofty calling come into place. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. But boy, what a great reminder. I was, I was just overwhelmed with all the things God was reminding me of, humbling me in, um, remembering that um, this is the concept of burnout, which is such an important word for the church. You know, don't go from habits or from knowledge um, because you do get drained. If anything is of our flesh, whenever you start to feel drained, do a check in the spirit. Do a check. Is it, is it my flesh that's operating or is it my spirit? Because our spirit is renewed day by day. Okay? 2 Corinthians 4, 18, 17 and 18. It, it gets renewed day by day. Our flesh dies daily, but our spirit's renewed. It's quickened. It's strengthened. That right there is the recipe that there's no such thing as burnout. And I often think about that for the worship. You know, when I'm praying for you guys, I'm like, man, if they're not filled with the spirit of God... Especially when there's 12 songs added on a Tuesday night. And they got to just keep going and going. It's like, if it's not the filling, they, you know, you only have so much human voice, so much movement, so much, you know, your back can ache holding a guitar. I mean, they know, they know. Talk to them about human limitations. But when the Spirit of God is flowing through you, you can run like Elijah ahead of the, tri- the chariots. It's like, what is happening right now? I am moving because I'm in the Spirit. It's the most amazing thing. And it's just always hard to get there because of our flesh just has to be crushed. But, uh, but praise God. Praise God for, for that great word. We just need that this morning.